Hello, how's everybody going today? I guess I'd be doing today, not going today. How's everybody doing today? It's Friday, finally. Um, it's not like it matters for me. I uh, I work the weekends. But the Reformed Baptists, they have been fighting recently. What have they been fighting about? They've been fighting about our angelic doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas. And also... St. Newman and his theory of doctrinal development. That's what they've been fighting about. And I'm going to go over and review two videos from this, uh, from this recent back and forth fight. It's been going on for a while, especially with uh, James White. But before that, um, we're going to hear some advertisements. I'll see you in a minute. Join my Patreon at patreon.com slash militantomist. You get access to more articles and videos. And if you'd like to help in another way, buy a Militant Thomas mug. Lastly, you can buy a book from Militant Thomas Press. See options below. Also, if you prefer audio, check us out on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Join the Discord to get involved. And if you're a patron, you get access to other Discord channels. Also, destroy that like and subscribe button and comment to annihilate that algorithm. Lastly, the show is brought to you by Fluent Greek. I'm sure you've forgotten your seminary Greek and need to get it back or just want to learn Greek to read sacred scripture in its original language. That's why Fluent Greek is here. Using modern pedagogical techniques, it has set it up so that you are reading Greek from the very beginning and learn Greek how you're supposed to learn it through reading Greek. It sorts the New Testament by verse from easiest to hardest and then gives space repetition of these verses so that you can read Greek as soon as possible. Even better, it is only 15 bucks a month to use. But if you use the code militant, you can get 20% off and help the show. Go to fluentgreek.com to learn more. And the link is in the description. There you go. Okay. Did I get a new camera? No, I didn't. I think it's just my lighting's different. Okay. So let's get let's get right into it. I did link the the two videos are going to be going over below. I'm not sure. Should I should I go James White first and then Josh Summer? Or should I go Josh Summer first and then James White? Or maybe I'll split it up once. Uh, because Josh Summer's reacting to James White. So maybe, maybe I should do James White first. I think that's what I'm going to do. I think that is what I'm going to do. Oh, no. Actually, went to my purchases. Okay, let's go. I don't know why the uh, the place I placed the uh, the links literally. Okay, oh yeah, Militant Thomas Press is coming out with uh, another book, so uh, you guys get excited. Should be talking about that in about a week or two. Okay, here we go. I think I'm going to go over the James White one first because it's funnier. <laughs> okay. I'm sure every single one of you uh, spent some significant time watching The Dividing Line. Don't lie. Okay. There you go. Reform Thomists? Question mark. That's the same question I'm having. <clears throat> Just kidding. Okay, now let's get into it. You know that uh, Nick has served as my translator every time I've gone to you. Yeah. The IFB warns people. Yeah. Well, actually, it starts, scroll back here, it starts on page 189, interview with Matthew Barrett. There we um, go. And uh, I want to read some portions of this, and then I also want to note that uh, Matthew Barrett uh, just tweeted a thread um, that is relevant to this, maybe because I mentioned I was going to be talking about this. Don't know. Doesn't say. Uh, that is interesting as well, and, and actually I think will be helpful in, uh, in looking at what's being said here and the response we want to give. The question was asked of Dr. Barrett. He, uh, some people might say, well, you know, why, why are you even uh, 
dealing with all this stuff and, and, and things like that. Uh, Dr. Barrett is associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so um, he has written a book, Simply Trinity, uh, which of course I've read. Um, and I um, just recently saw a review of it um, that came to a lot of the same conclusions that I had when I had listened to it initially, especially given the fact that I, I would naturally go into reading someone's book on the Trinity with a very positive, I want to track with this, I want to agree uh, perspective, but had come to conclusions toward the end going, there's, a, there's an overemphasis and hence a lack of emphasis on things here, at least from my perspective. And uh, the review did that. But the, the point is, this is a, a major voice in, um, in Baptist circles. So he was asked, who do you believe is the most useful scholar of the Middle Ages on the Trinity? Thomas Aquinas. Based. At the start of his Summa Theologica, uh, he says he is writing to help the student of theology understand not only what to believe, but why. Writing with profound clarity and explanatory power, Thomas demonstrates the cohesion of the Christian faith and within the Augustinian and Anselmian spirit of faith, Based. seeking understanding. That's an interesting description. There, there would be, be many who would find that an interesting and somewhat biased description. I think most people who read Thomas would wonder at the term profound clarity, maybe simply due to the passage of time. Well, that's because Dr. White doesn't watch Militant Thomas streams where he goes over the, the Summa. But Dr. White, if you watch them, then uh, and you would understand the great explanatory power and clarity of St. Thomas. Yeah, just because you can't understand the terminology used because you don't have a background in Aristotelian philosophy doesn't mean you, you got a dunk on the man like that. Come on now. Uh, translational issues, but the especially the technical amount of language. But for me personally, explanatory power assumes... For a, for a Christian, anyways, uh, assumes a, a deep biblical element that I simply do not find in Thomas. <clears throat> it's because you, I, I'm sure, I'm sure, Dr. White, you, you, you know the Summa exists. You maybe know that the Summa Contra Gentiles exists. Have you read the commentaries of St. Thomas, one of the greatest biblical scholars in the Middle Ages? It would it would be it'd be akin to somebody reading Calvin's Institutes. So for for the Reformed out there, it'd be akin to reading a Calvin's Institutes and then not reading Calvin's commentaries, where he basically proves from sacred scripture what he's saying in his Institutes. That's like reading Thomas's Summa or his uh, Compendium Theologiae or his uh, commentary on the sentences or or what may it be without reading his biblical commentaries. His biblical commentaries are amazing. Um, areas of dogma for for saint thomas so this this just shows that uh th this is what happens when you have the overemphasis on the summa without reading the gosh probably 70 other volumes that th thomas wrote in his complete works it's sad and that's that's part of what i want to do is to show you guys that there's a lot more than the summa um and many others have said similar things i continue on by posing theological questions he first identifies the erroneous answer but with a robust seriousness, considering with amicable fairness whether the opposing position is legitimate, even anticipating what scriptures and patristic sources could be appealed to for support. When he replies, he does so with unprecedented precision, weaving a synthesis of scriptural, historical, theological, and philosophical sources until he arrives at a conclusion that exhibits the legitimacy and coherence of Christianity. Now, this is called the scholastic method, of course. And so you raise objections, and then you answer those objections. And there is obviously tremendous value to that in certain contexts. Um, in many contexts, it can become somewhat boring after a while uh, and uh, difficult to follow and keep the attention. I'm sorry that uh, <laughs> the theology is boring to you. Uh, but uh... Hmm. Uh, he's awake. 
Augustine's sick right now, guys. Sad. Wait, give me one second. Somebody needed to join me, so uh, we're gonna be we're gonna be streaming together. So uh, yeah, he's sick. He uh, he definitely is not happy right now. So uh, okay, let's get back into it. Certainly, I, I think we could agree with most of that description of that scholastic methodology that Thomas utilized. It is a tragedy. I continue. It is a tragedy that evangelicals have cut themselves off. From this theologian whom R.C. Sproul once said is the greatest theologian the church has ever known. Based R.C. Now, I just have to stop there for a moment. I uh, am well aware of R.C.'s Thomistic uh, fascination. And I'm personally getting tired of the repetition of the fact that R.C. had a tremendous love for um, Aquinas, as did Norm Geisler, for that matter. Um, Evangelicals have cut themselves off from this theologian. I just want to remind everybody that according to Thomas's own writings, um, he believed that heretics should be cut off from the earth. Hey Siri, pull up John Calvin's view on heretics. Like read Francis Turret. Like this is just silly. Read Francis Turret and um, on arch heretics being executed. Like come on now. <laughs> and you've you've personally uh, <laughs> you've you've personally expressed your your like for Turret and do so. So, so yeah, that very inconsistent. Um. And much of his discussion of the power of the keys and the nature of the church lies behind the Counter-Reformation. Based. And as I mentioned before, Geneva sent a long line of missionaries into Italy, almost all of whom died. Hey, Alexa, pull up the 40 martyrs of uh, Scotland and Wales. Let's see. Oh, wait. What are the 40 martyrs of Scotland and Wales? Here's what I found. Oh, a group of Catholic lay and religious men and women executed between 1535 and 1697 for treason. Hmm. Very interesting. Wow. Seems like (laughs) Italy was not the only one executing people. Isn't that right, buddy? Let's get right back into it. As martyrs. And that was in part due to not them cutting off Thomas but the church that Thomas provided the very soul to, cutting them off from life. Uh, so I find, I find the language here from a historical perspective um, somewhat difficult to, uh, to grasp. Um, our separation from Thomas has occurred for no fault but our own. Again, I, 
wonder how many Jesuit inquisitors would have agreed. We have believed caricatures that paint the reformers as if they were anti-Thomistic, when in truth, the real target of their disdain were later medievals, such as Gabriel Beale, William of Ockham, who departed from Thomas in significant ways. Well, what were those significant ways that made them the actual only targets of the reformers? It depends on what subject we're addressing, doesn't it? By neglecting half of church history, the Middle Ages spanning an entire millennium, we leave ourselves vulnerable to the inculcation of Trinitarian foibles, otherwise avoided by medieval scholastics like Thomas, who outlined the mature consequences of Nicene Trinitarianism. I want you to hear what was just said there. What lies behind uh, this assertion is a doctrine of theological development, not directly identical with a theory as that produced by John Henry Cardinal Newman. Don't pretend you can articulate John Henry Cardinal Newman's theory. Just don't pretend. Like, I, I absolutely hate this when, when guys like this pretend like they, they just know about John Henry Newman or know about Thomas. Like, obviously, you you watch this whole video and how they explain these guys' views. They, they don't know. They have no idea. Gosh. And, uh, and actually, we're going to hop over right now to... Uh, Joshua Summer in his response video to part of part of this, and he discusses this issue of doctrinal development. And I think it, this was very, very uh, helpful. Let me bring it up. There we go. This is very, and, and, and this is just actually spectacular. There's a there's a big reason why I wanted to. Uh, Wanted to go over this one in particular because I think uh, Joshua Summer, he's great. Uh, follow him definitely. Um, he's a he, if you want the best of the best when it comes to Protestantism. But uh, when when he explains um, when he explains a proper Protestant uh, development of doctrine, he accidentally perfectly explains uh, Newman's uh, theory of development. It's really amazing when when you look at it. When people think they're going against Newman but they're actually just articulating Newman. It's absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Okay. And it gets worse in the dividing line episode. It, trust me, it gets much worse. Okay. The first few minutes is him discussing some stuff about James White's personally. And I'm not, it's not a secondary tertiary issue. It is the very bedrock of our religion as Christians talking about the March 3rd dividing line. I'm talking about the dividing line that was streamed live on March 1st, right? March 1st. And the title of it is Reformed Thomists, question mark. And I'm not going to review the episode. I'm not going to do a, a point by point, you know, evaluation or examination of it or anything like that. But one of the things, if you just start at like the 10 minute mark, maybe I, I would just, I would encourage you, of course, if you want to listen to the whole thing, start at the beginning. But the relevant area is when Dr. James White begins to talk about doctrinal development. Um, and that conversation uh, on his part begins you know, 10 minutes, I would say the 10 minute mark to start there. Um, I'm looking at 1238 right now where he starts to draw on the board, kind of illustrating uh, what he perceives to be the, 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 the issue of asserting any kind of doctrinal development. Um, and, and the concern comes from a, 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 a quote. It's a quote from a journal article, I believe, in the Master's uh, Journal that Dr. Matthew Barrett wrote. Um, and the excerpt, I'm just going to read the entire excerpt and, uh, and then we'll go from there. But what, what Dr. Barrett wrote is this. He says, we have not treated Thomas with the same historical fairness and sobriety as other fallible theologians across the church's history. Of course, the evangelical will disagree with Thomas on a doctrine like the sacraments, but Cringe. we have failed to recognize that less than 12% of the Summa, by that he means the Summa Theologiae, is 
content, the evangelical will disagree with it all. So he's saying that less than 12% is content that is going to be called into question by uh, the, uh, the evangelical. He says evangelicals might also be surprised to discover that they have an Augustinian ally in Thomas with doctrines as widespread as predestination, providence, inspiration, atonement, and Christian virtues. That startling statistic leaves evangelicals open to interrogation. Are evangelicals actually reading Thomas or relying on easy caricatures that depend on serious inaccuracies? But more to the point, what other theologians in history would we abandon like this, especially when the same theologian was so responsible for the full development of the most foundational loci or loci in orthodoxy? the Trinity and Christology. Now that's the phrase that that's the phrase that, that Dr. White's calling the question in the dividing line here that I'm talking about. Roman Catholics recognized Thomas's indispensability to theology, but we have allowed them to take Thomas without a fight. And I would say that that's right there. I think there's, there's a lot of, uh, <clears throat> rightfully so, there's a lot of questioning right now as to whether or not Trent did the right thing with Thomas. Uh, a lot of people will say, no, you need to avoid Thomas because Thomas is after all the bedrock of, of the Council of Trent. Uh, the counter, you know, Rome's counter-reformation and all of that. Well, the, the question, of course, becomes, well, did the Council of Trent fairly appropriate Thomas Aquinas? Um, and I think... I think it's pretty obvious that they did, but, uh, well, we can we can disagree on that, but I... Yeah. I think that's something that is 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 being called into question because of the heavy resourcement that's, that's, that's taking... It's been taking place for a while now. Anyway, the phrase that's, that's called into question here is this phrase related to, or mentioning, the development of Trinity and Christology. But more to the point, what other theologian in history would we abandon like this, especially... Oh, wait. Thomists are as bad as Calvinists or misunderstanding predestination. No, Calvinists are right and Thomists are right. So uh, you can cope all day. Yeah. And Augustine agrees. And he's the doctor of grace. So. Okay. Actually, when this same theologian was so responsible for the full development, those are the words in question, of the most foundational Loki, in orthodoxy, the Trinity and Christology. And of course, Dr. James White implicates this idea of doctrinal development in Newmanism. You know, John Henry Newman is the famous 19th century Catholic theologian that argued for a form of doctrinal development, which, which actually enabled Rome to better justify its behavior as a chameleon, uh, chronologically and culturally. So when, when, when Rome, you know, begins to quote unquote, evangelize another culture, you know, they will change and adapt to that culture so they can be more easily accepted by that culture at large. And then in terms of time as well, we know that the Roman Catholicism of the 6th century, 7th century, is most certainly not the same Roman Catholicism that we see in the 15th and 16th centuries. Well, it depends on what you mean by same. Substantially the same? Yes. Different in appearances or, uh, or such like that? Obviously not. And that's what Newman's uh, doctrinal development is really all about. And so in order to justify that kind of progress... <clears throat> that kind of change, because remember, <clears throat> Rome has to justify that change in light of the fact that the magisterium uh, provides or facilitates an infallible interpretation, uh, theological interpretation of the word of God. All right. So um, you, you, on, on the one hand, you're saying, well, the church is unable to err. On the other hand, you're saying, well, but the church has changed over the last thousand, 1500 years or so. Right. So how do you hold those two things together in tension? And what they do through John Henry Newman is they engineer a uh, a conception or an idea of doctrinal development, which allows for change in doctrine itself. It allows for change. In no, 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 no. That, that, that's not, that's not what he believes, not change in doctrine itself. Change in our grasping of the objective word of God, which is, which is uh, subjectively impressed upon us. So our impression of what is, what, what has already been given. 
Not 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 a change in the, in the in the doctrinal the apostolic deposit itself. No 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 no. Not what. Uh, and on, honestly, the best explanation you're going to get uh, for Newman's doctrine is going to come in about two minutes in this video when he starts to explain what he believes about doctrinal development. Because honestly, I think it's about the same, except you're going to get differences when it comes to um, the subjective word of God um, and its relation to the objective word of God in regard to the magisterium. And the doctrine itself. And this is how Rome can justify its uh, substantive and accidental changes in various cultures throughout the world and you know throughout various seasons and centuries. Anyway, that's a lengthy discussion set forth by Newman in a lengthy essay called on the De development of doctrine that's not what and i and i think a better work is honestly and i'm going to keep harping on this although there's there's no um there's no it's out of print now but uh on on the evolution of catholic dogma in roman catholic writings and doctrine and development that's honestly i think a better work when it comes to understanding exactly what newman means because he does it more succinctly like in, if you read the essay on development it's a it's a hard read um I'm, not gonna, not gonna, not gonna make it sound easy. It's it's a difficult read, and Newman is a Victorian era scholar using all of these insanely autistic distinctions. Yes, we can, we all understand that, but um, but yeah, I I, I don't think that's the uh, that that's necessarily the best work to to go to when you're trying to understand doctrinal development. What Matthew Barrett's talking about here. All right. There's a difference between saying on the one hand that doctrine itself develops, which we don't want to say. Right. That's what, yes. that's what Rome seems to want to say no. in order to justify their in order to be able to hold their their doctrine of ecclesiology and tradition, yet also the account for the change of doctrine that's occurred in them over the centuries. Um, we don't want to say that. We don't want to join with them and say that at all. Amen. Um, but you have to recognize the fact that doctrine, in if it's our doctrine, for example, if it's our our teaching, our understanding. Right. If, if it's our. Yes. Uh, our understanding of doctrine yes. that we're talking about, yes. we have to say that yes. that develops. Yes. Um, what we don't want to say is that the doctrine that God has revealed once for all to yes. develops, right? That's Look up objective word of God, subjective word of God in in that work that I referenced from Newman. Just look just look it up. I, I will I will send you the sections to it. Anybody that wants wants it. I will scan them and send it. Like, this is exactly what Newman's trying to get at. Thank you. Doctrine in itself. This is the revelation that God has given to us. All the truth in the scriptures is yes. given, of course, in the scriptures. Right? Yes. But is there a progress and understanding in the human mind, in the yes. mind of the believer, yes. as he or she reads the scriptures, chews on the scriptures, yes. feasts on the scriptures, yes. and over time their understanding increases, their knowledge increases, they become more and more mature. This is the process of sanctification we're talk talking about. Now do this, but for the whole church. All right. And we don't say that, uh, you know, you take, take it at the individual level, an individual Christian. We don't say that because the individual Christian is sanctified and comes to a more thorough understanding of doctrine later on in life by the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't say that, therefore, his doctrine or the object of his faith has changed, though he has increased in the understanding and knowledge of yes. the object of his yes, faith. Yes, exactly. Namely, the triune God, the Holy Spirit, and the triune God's works. Right? Yes. Um, and so there's a, there's a key distinction that we have to make there between doctrine itself or the faith as it's objectively considered as it comes from the mouth of god yes and our understanding of it on the other hand now yes so you, you admit the, the, this is beautiful this is a great explanation guys so listen up this, i this is really good admit that you have to admit on some level that there's some development yes. in an individual's knowledge exactly. in their grasp and understanding of christian doctrine and so uh when you when you take that and you expand that out to the church at large um from the first century onward 
Yes. Uh, and you consider mm-hmm. texts like Matthew 16, where Jesus says that he'll build his church. The gates of Hades will by no means prevail again. Those, you're getting it. Like, exactly. Like, isn't this crazy, guys? This is this is really good. He can't mean by that in number only, right? He's not just talking about numbers. He's not just talking there about, you know, the, the amount of believers. He, he's also talking about their, their, their improvement in the knowledge of Christ. And, uh, and so, you know, when you, if, you, if you consider the bride, which Christ, which Christ is sanctifying, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 25 onward, then you have to, you have to be able to expand that, that experience of the individual believer to an extent to the, to the whole church also, so that the whole church really is being sanctified. The whole church is being sanctified. That's what Ephesians 5 tells us. And so. Okay. And so man said, Council of Orange condemned those who taught predestination to evil. <laughs> So uh, I actually have like a whole like uh, 30 page uh, essay on this that's on my blog on an Augustinian understanding of reprobation and how that's been received in the church um, through the uh, early church and then through the uh, medieval era. So, so yeah, when it comes to predestination to evil, that's specifically talking about a sort of equality or equal ultimacy between reprobation and election. Like that's just bread and butter Thomism right there. Read Summa Theologiae, uh, Article Twenty Three, Question Three or Question Four, one of those two. Okay, Augustine developed his own ideas of predestination, which are not universally accepted, and some have developed beyond his views. Okay, yeah, development of doctrine. So what? Predestination wasn't really a low side that was covered before Augustine. It didn't really come. Up to fighting until Pelagius came around. That, that That's just how doctrinal development works. You, before it's covered, there's less precise explanations of the issue. But once you have the debate itself, then uh, it, then you get it even better. So, uh, yeah, if you uh, if you reach out to me and some man, I can I can send you that paper that I wrote. Because I, I can't remember exactly what it's called in my blog. Something about Augustinian and then something about reprobation. Can't even remember. That was a while ago that I wrote it. get back to it the doctrine that has been given to the church with the close of the canon of the new testament um put together with the old testament of course is complete it's perfect yes it's sufficient yes is our understanding of it complete and perfect no i would hope nobody would say that uh i mean even even the apostles you know did not know everything there was to know about the christian faith what they did speak on in terms of their epistolary writings and the gospel accounts and all of that is true infallibly inerrantly because it's under yes. the inspiration of the holy exactly. spirit exactly but they themselves as persons did not have an exhaustive knowledge of the christian faith um moving on from them going beyond them to the the, the early church post-apostolic church it did not have an exhaustive knowledge of the christian faith in fact when you're looking at some doctrines i'll, I'll use uh-huh. baptism as an example uh-huh. Uh-huh. there's not a, a ton of universal agreement on the age of baptism, yeah, that's an exact example that John Hunter Newman uses. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> this is this is the these are examples that John Henry Newman uses in his essay on the development of doctrine. It's actually kind of kind of scary how close he's getting to to basically explaining Newman. Uncertain things in the early church. Um, that's not because the doctrine's not there, objectively considered, but it's because exactly. the creature uh, is in process of coming to a better understanding exactly. of the doctrine. 
And so when, when the Christian, by the power of the Spirit, grasps the seminal gospel, the gospel, the basic gospel that must be believed on for salvation, which has to be there and intact in the very beginning, the Christian enters upon a life, and this is true of the whole church to a degree, the, inter, the, the whole church has entered upon a life of plumbing the depths of God's revelation, and we're 2,000 years into it. And so when we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of Christology, we're of course not saying that God hasn't revealed everything that we need to know about exactly. the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of Christology. Exactly, but we're coming to a better understanding as that word of God impresses on the mind of the church. God has revealed it all. God has delivered it all exactly. for, what, for one, to the saints, right? God's, uh, God has, has, has given us the complete package. Does it take time and sanctification to come to a more thorough yes. grasp and understanding of that doctrine that God has delivered to the church? Yes. And the answer should be, of course, yes. Right? Yes. There's no way that Christians at any given point in their lives are going to be saying, I know, and, and, and you know, there's no way that they're going to be saying this credibly. I know exhaustively and fully the doctrine of the Trinity. I know exhaustively and fully the doctrine of Christology. Of course, that would never be the case if you confess the infinity of God, uh, the magnitude of God, and so on and so forth. So there must be some form of doctrinal development, but it's not the development yes. of doctrine in say that is yes. in and of itself. Yes, it's it's in subjecto. It's not in say. It's in subjecto. The doctrinal development of doctrine in subjecto. Yes, there you go. It's it's in sub. It's the subjective word of God for a reason that's developing that we talk when we talk about it. It's as it's received in the subject. I'm so glad we've come to an understanding. I'm, I'm guessing the Reformed Baptists and the Roman Catholics need to write one of those documents. Like, you know how they had like evangelicals and Catholics together? You'd have Reformed Baptists and Catholics together, but on the development of doctrine. We, we, we're, we're, we're tracking right now. We're tracking right now. All right. That is in the subject, in the knower. And collectively considered, when we consider the whole church, the, the, the church is the knower, right? And so there is... Uh, development of doctrine in subiecto that is in the knower the church coming to a better grasp a fuller grasp a, a more weighty grasp of what we're dealing with in christian theology all right so that's a that's kind of a, a right understanding of of doctrine and i will just appeal to um uh the the second london baptist confession of faith um okay so that's about that's about all uh, let's get back to uh to actually james white now Unless you guys have any questions. Okay. Which views are received by the magisterium? Um, there's, I mean, there's, you have to always consider the whole Molinism versus um, Thomism. That has not been, uh, that has not been, oh, stop hitting my mic, dude. That has not been decided by the magisterium. Not at all. Okay. Is this guy a Reformed Baptist? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. But generally, Augustinian, Augustinianism has been received by the magisterium, has been correct over Pelagius, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> joint, joint declaration. Yes, this is my son, Augustine. So if I refer to Augustine, sometimes I'm referring to him, not the not the angelic, I mean the, the doctor of grace. Okay. <laughs> to, to, don't want to appeal to the London Baptist Confession. Yeah, I had to cut it off while we still had agreement going on. Yeah. Okay. 
Now let's get back to... Yeah, he's probably never seen himself before. Yeah, yeah. He's got the hiccups. Okay, let's get back to James White. And if he gets loud, I'll mute myself. Oh, real quick. What are your thoughts on Leighton Flowers' soteriology? Yeah, I think Leighton Flowers is a heretic. Because if you believe that the uh, the will precedes grace, and grace is defined as actual grace, which is um, in in scholastic theology referring not to just the preaching of the gospel. That's not what actual grace provenient to the to a decision is. So when you have the the will preceding actual grace, then you're a Pelagian, and therefore you are a heretic. So it's pretty easy. <laughs> He needs a James White haircut. No, he, he, he was he was born with a lot of hair. Oh, buddy. Okay, let's get back to James White. I'll mute myself. But still, a concept of doctrinal development to where, well, let, let me lay, lay it out for you here. If we, if we have the apostolic period here, and then time is going this direction. And so you have uh, Nicaea here, and you have the, the period of post-Nicene Primarily, Christological development comes after that. And then you're, you're pretty much looking at the, the medieval period being, being here, okay? And so, you know, Aquinas is at the high point. Uh, if we put the Reformation here, then Aquinas is the high point here. So the idea is you have um, a, a, a development that's going on uh, to where you have key Christological and, and theological uh, developments that are going this direction, but the development continues all the way through the medieval period. And so you really don't get to a mature uh, Trinitarian understanding until all the way down here. Now, I think, I think the Cappadocian fathers and a few others would have struggled a little bit with this idea, but the idea is you've got this development, and therefore that continues on into the Reformation, all right, and is absolutely central, therefore, that, that this development, which includes Thomas's metaphysic, which is not definitional back here, but it becomes definitional here, this becomes definitional here, this, this becomes That's exactly what uh, what happens to <laughs> actually when the reformers are looking at themselves. Because I mean, like, read um, if if you want if you want a non-reformed scholastic author that covers this, read Philip Schaff and his uh, and his works on doctrinal development. That's what he basically says about what the Reformation is. He says Refor the Reformation is just a development on uh, on certain streams of late medieval doctrine. That's that's what he's and I and I honestly agree with him. I think it's a corruption, obviously, or I would be reformed. But basically, that's what that's what the Reformation is. The Reformation took some streams in late medieval thought and ran with them in a wrong direction. So, yeah, that, that that's actually exactly how the reformers saw themselves. Exactly how they saw themselves as the as the uh, the true Catholics. <laughs> yeah, and then he's he appeals to the Cappadocians. Yeah. Obviously, if you read the Cappadocians and then you read later Trinitarian Reflection, you can see, um, well, the Cappadocians obviously are central. Um, there's a little bit to be left wanting, and the church comes to a better understanding of, of the Trinity as time goes on after the Cappadocians. Unrelated, but where can we find the video in which James White responds to you? <laughs> if, uh, oh, man. 
Let me let me look that up. I'll look it up and send it in the chat real quick. Um, I meant I've always been meaning to do a response video. I actually released the uh, the transcript. I wrote I wrote notes for a response to that video, and I released it to my patrons. So if you want Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/militantthomas, you can find the the transcripts to a response where I basically write do a written response to to James White. But I have never done an, an audio response to that. I, I think it's kind of too late at this point. I just released it for my um I just released it for my patrons. Okay. Yep. It's a dividing line highlight. This isn't this isn't the whole thing. Make sure everybody goes and thumbs down the video and then harasses them in the comments. Be based. Okay. Yeah, I'm bringing it up for Militant Jamie. What the heck? Genevan Palmite. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. The great tradition, you have to read everything like the great tradition. And so if you really want to be truly reformational, then you need all the stuff that came here. See? That's the assertion. Now, let me mention one other thing while I've got this up here. If we look at this, I want to, I want, I want to remind us of one other key issue. Um, what was, what was the, the saying um, that a lot of people use today? Post tenebrous books. And R.C. Sproul liked that one too, so I guess we can use that as well, right? Oh, oh yeah. Let, let's, let's just compare. <laughs> here, here, we have, here we have thousands of pages on the, the reformers' use of St. Thomas Aquinas <laughs> made by actual scholars versus the Chad James White, just like a quote that Bapt that Boomer Baptists put on their Bibles. <laughs> like who would win? <laughs> Best argument ever, Dr. White. I have I've I've never heard anything better than than just oh my gosh. That 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 when I when I listened to that the first time, I just laughed. Because that that's not a good argument. Um, post tenebrous looks after darkness, light. <laughs> when was the darkness? Um, this idea. Can anybody in the chat, uh, if you're on your if you're on your laptop, find out for me when when that uh, when that phrase first came to first came to be? That was actually the uh, the motto of my undergrad, right there. I just never looked. Pretty sure it's a later sort of um, phrase. I don't. I don't see. Um... Okay. Let me block that person. Okay. Let's get back to it. Yeah. Somebody find for me when that phrase comes from. I. I don't think it's. I don't think it's from the Reformation era of continuing growth and 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 in a positive sense where's where's the dark the whole reason for this saying was that there was a darkness in the sense of an encroachment of tradition and human philosophy and the only way that could happen is if what think with me i'm not just gonna answer quickly but what is the necessary truth that became less and less central within the experience of what called itself the Christian church. And I think it's fairly obvious that when we look at that, we are looking at sola scriptura. Okay? 
Total script row. Wow, if that's what's going out, it doesn't look anything like what <laughs> the, the colors I'm seeing and the colors you're seeing are, are different things. But anyway, solo scriptura. So um, I can show you early fathers who are speaking of the uniqueness of the authority of scripture, the ultimacy of the authority of scripture. scripture. Great. And I can speak of the, I'm sure you find in my writings about the uniqueness of the authority of scripture and the sufficiency of scripture. So doesn't mean they agree with you. Scripture is sufficient above all things. Athanasius tells us Athanasius stands on the authority of Scripture over against councils of the church. And, okay. And, and helps to overturn the Arian ascendancy after the Council of Nicaea. Great. Um, you, can, you can go to Fulgentia, Fulgentius of Rusp, uh, who is in the 6th century, and you, you will still see people functioning. Now, they're, they're having to... You can find the same statements in Thomas Aquinas, and I'm about to go what, later in this video... When you start to cover about how St. Thomas doesn't believe this and doesn't believe that, I'm going to go into the Summa and I'm going to show you exactly where he talks about the same things. Struggle in light of the, so if, if, if Sola Scriptura, let me, let me move this out of the way here. If Sola Scriptura is declining during this time, then tradition, and we'll uh, make tradition a different color, uh, tradition is increasing at this time. All right. And so, in this time period, and certainly as you look at, uh, at Aquinas, this is not a period where he is limited by Sola Scriptura. Is he better in that area than someone else getting him? Okay, so what? Where, where does St. Thomas say that he gets all his doctrine? Are, are we? Okay, I'll, I'm just, I, I have to pull it up now. I have to pull it up now. Just, get, just getting tired of this. Tired of this same thing about how St. Thomas hated Scripture and that and blah, 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 blah. Where is it? Okay, where does he say it? Let me find it. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's see. It's in Summa Theologiae, Prima Pars, one. And I should really pull these up beforehand. Huh, it's not where I thought it was actually. Let's keep let's keep watching here and I'll look for it. Yes. But the point is he is not limited by Sola Scriptura. He believes in the power of the keys. He believes in traditions. We're gonna look at a at a quotation from here here in a moment. Well, since I'm doing it, um, I don't want to forget it. I posted I posted this uh, quotation on Twitter last night, and a lot of people just had no earthly idea what in the world I was talking about. I'm sorry. Um it, it seemed obvious. But this is from the Summa. And here's, here's the statement. The apostles, led by the inward instinct of the Holy Ghost, handed down to the churches certain instructions which they did not put in writing, but which have been ordained in accordance with the observance of the church as practiced by the faithful as time went on. Wherefore, the apostle says, and here's Thomas, interpreting 2 Thessalonians 2.14, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have learned, whether by word, and then that's the end of the quotation, of the scripture, and then there's a parenthetical statement from Thomas. That is by word of mouth, parentheses closed, 
or by our epistle, parentheses, that is by word put into writing, parentheses. Among these traditions is the worship of Christ's image. Wherefore it is said that blessed Luke painted the image of Christ, which is in Rome. Well, there are a lot of things in Rome that we recognize today were completely fallacious and Thomas believed in many of them. But be it as it may, please note what we have here from the Summa. We have this, okay? Here's, here's, here's tradition. If you have listened to any of the debates I did decades ago with Jerry Matatix or any of the other Roman Catholics who I debated on Sola Scriptura, you've heard this before. That is the idea that the apostles, so this is apostolic in origin, the apostles led by the inward instinct of the Holy Ghost. This is or is not revelation, hard to say. Handed down to the churches certain instructions which they did not put in writing. Here is the oral tradition. This is why Rome to this day has sacred tradition. Okay? Sacred tradition. Capital S, capital T. Sacred tradition, which is made up of the written tradition, scripture, and the oral tradition passed down from Jesus to the apostles, from the apostles to the churches, and maintained in unwritten form until it needs to be written down, which is why Rome can then define as dogmas, things that there's no evidence that anyone in the first centuries of the Christian church actually believed. But hey, we've got this source of information. And so, wherefore, the apostle says, then we have this citation. And Thomas simply blows the interpretation. I would hope that everyone, including all the new, newly minted Reformed Baptist Thomas, uh, would agree that Thomas blew this exegesis. At least I hope you would. Stand fast, hold the traditions which you have been learned, whether by word of mouth or by our epistle. It's one body of tradition, communicated in two ways. And when you look at it in context, what he's referring to is the gospel, which he preached orally to the Thessalonians and which was included in his first epistle that he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. So this doesn't bifurcate the... Okay, found it. Finally, finally, guys. Okay. So let's let's get right into it. Okay, so it's in Prima Pars. <clears throat> Question one, article eight, whether sacred doctrine is a matter of arguments. Okay, let's see what St. Thomas says about, uh, about scripture. Oh, oh, sorry. Oh. Is James White makes it seem at least that St. Thomas was not did not see himself as drawing all of his doctrine from scripture, but is drawing it from a multitude of sources. But let's see what he actually says. So as other sciences do not argue in proof of their principles, but argue from their principles to demonstrate other truths in these sciences. So for example, if you have um I, I don't know, the uh, philosophy. Philosophy is going to have the, that first principle of non-contradiction that they're going to argue from. So philosophy does not argue for that principle of non-contradiction because that's just assumed in the science. So we don't prove the principles of theology just like other sciences don't prove their principles. So this doctrine, that is theology, does not argue in proof of its principles. What are its principles? Which are the articles of faith? But from them, it goes on to prove something else. As the apostle argues from the resurrection of Christ and argues in proof of the general resurrection. However, this is where it's going to get into it. It is to be borne in mind in regard to the philosophical sciences that the inferior sciences neither prove their principles nor dispute with those who deny them. 
but leave this to the higher sciences, whereas the highest of them, that is metaphysics, can dispute with one who denies its principles. If only the opponent will make some concession, but if he concede nothing, it can have no dispute with him, though it can answer his objections. Okay, now we're going to get into the important part. Let's see what St. Thomas thinks about scripture. Oh, wait, I don't even have it pulled up for you guys. Oopsie daisy. Oopsie daisy. You guys didn't even tell me. Okay, here we go. Let's... Okay, this is actually terrible. Let's go back to this. Okay. Let's see. Hence sacred scripture, since it has no science above itself. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sacred scripture has no science above itself. What? You mean it's like the highest authority and a supreme authority in doctrine? That's crazy. Can dispute with one... Uh, hence, uh, since he can dispute with one who denies its principles, only if the opponent admits some at least of the truths obtained through divine revelation. Thus, we can argue with heretics from the text and holy writ, and against those who deny one article of the faith, we can argue from the other. If our opponent believes nothing of divine revelation, there is nothing any means of proving the articles of faith by reasoning, but only of answering his objections, if he has any against faith. Since faith rests upon infallible truth, and since the contrary of truth can neither be demonstrated, it is clear that the arguments brought against faith cannot be demonstrated, but are difficulties to be answered. Hmm. Crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Scripture has no science above itself. That is absolutely nuts. Okay, and then he's going to get into it even more here in the response to objection two. What is objection two? Further, if the matter of argument, the argument is either from authority or from reason, it is from authority, it seems unbefitting its dignity, for the proof from authority is the weakest form of proof. But if it is from reason, this is unbefitting its end, because according to Gregory, faith is no merit in those things of which human reason brings its own experience. Therefore, sacred doctrine is not a matter of argument. Okay, let's see what he says. We're going to skip that first paragraph. And then, actually, I'm just going to start from the beginning. This doctrine is especially based upon arguments from authority inasmuch as its principles are obtained by revelation. Thus, we ought to believe on the authority of those to whom the revelation has been made. Nor does this take away from the dignity of this doctrine. For although the argument from authority based on human reason is the weakest, yet the argument from authority based on divine revelation is the strongest. Notice divine revelation. What is the argument based on divine revelation? Where is that found? Scripture. According to St. Thomas. Principally, Scripture. But sacred doctrine makes use even of human reason, not indeed to prove faith, for thereby the merit of faith would come to an end, but to make clear other things that are put forward in this doctrine. Notice, what is, the, what is human reason? Human reason does not add to the faith, but it just makes clear those things which are already in the faith, which just destroys most of Dr. White's arguments. Since, therefore, grace does not destroy nature but perfects it, natural reason should minister to faith as the natural bent of the will ministers to charity. Hence, the apostle says, blah, blah, blah. Hence, sacred doctrine makes use also of the authority of philosophers in the, in the questions in which they were able to know the truth by natural reason. Notice, philosophers are only in the scope of the truth which they know natural reason. As Paul quotes a saying, blah, blah, blah. 
Nevertheless, sacred doctrine makes use of those authorities as extrinsic and probable arguments, but properly uses the authority of the canonical scriptures as an inconvertible proof. What? Crazy. Does Thomas Aquinas believe in sola scriptura? Well, no, but it's fun to fun to bring up these quotes because obviously St. Thomas didn't care at all about the authority of scripture. And, and he goes even further. And the authority of the doctors of the church as one may properly properly be used yet merely as probable the doctors of the church how do we use them not on the same level as scripture as inconvertible proof but only as probable proofs for our faith rests upon the revelation made to the apostles and prophets who wrote the canonical books and not on the revelations if any such there are made to other doctors it's crazy we do not base our faith on private revelation. We base it on the revelation made to the apostles and prophets who wrote the canonical books. And then he quotes a saying from Augustine, which is very important to this. Hence, Augustine says, Only those books of scripture which are called canonical have I learned to hold in such honor as to believe their authors have not erred in any way in writing them. But other authors, I so read as not to deem everything in their works to be true merely on account of their having so thought or written, whatever may have been their holiness and learning. So St. Thomas Aquinas just doesn't care about scripture. I think, that, honestly, he's going further than a lot of Roman Catholics, at least online, currently would be comfortable with saying. I think, honestly, a lot would say that he went too far. Now let's go to another section real quick. From his commentary on Galatians. Let's look here. I answer that nothing is to be taught except what is contained. Nothing is to be taught. Nothing is to be taught. Nothing, nothing. What is the definition of nothing, computer? Oh, now you're not going to do it. What is nothing? Not anything. No single thing. Something of no importance or concern. Nothing, absolutely not a thing, is to be taught except what is contained either implicitly or explicitly in the Gospels and Epistles and Sacred Scripture. For Sacred Scripture, the Gospels announce that Christ must be believed explicitly. Hence, whatever is contained therein implicitly and fosters its teaching and faith in Christ can be preached and taught. Therefore, when he says, besides that which you have written, received, he means by anything, adding something completely alien. If any man shall add to these things, God shall add unto him the plagues written in this book. And neither can anything add anything, i.e. contrary or alien, nor diminish. So, where is St. Thomas basing his his uh, theology off of scripture, 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 scripture. You see it everywhere where, uh, where Dr. White would like to have you believe that when you read through Thomas's works, it's almost all tradition and quoting all of these other authorities and blah, 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 blah. Look, scripture, scripture, scripture. Let's see. Scripture, 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 scripture. I haven't found a single church father yet. Although, obviously, he, uh, he has a lot of respect for the church fathers and uses them. Scripture, scripture. I mean, he found the gloss, which is kind of weird. Scripture. Scripture, scripture. Scripture, scripture. Yeesh. Scripture. It's not looking good for James White right now. Scripture, scripture. Scripture. Scripture, scripture. I've not found a single church father yet. This is actually kind of weird. Scripture. 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 Okay. All scripture. Scripture, 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 
Okay, this is getting kind of prescriptive. Okay, four scriptures in this one. Another one here. Another one here. Another one here. Okay, yeah, I can't I can't find a church father. Okay, scripture. And then this one isn't even a church father. This is just talking about a historical. Yeah, I can I cannot. Okay. Yeah, you okay. Nope, nope, still, still. That's still not a church father quoting. That's just an illustration. Okay, yeah. I, look, I can't find a church father. Honestly, like, St. Thomas was a uh, magister sacra pagina, a master of the sacred page. Yes, exactly. James James Gilbert. St. Thomas was the master of the sacred page. Like, like come on. <laughs> come on. <laughs> come on. It's it's so obvious if you actually read St. Thomas that he's not just what James White's saying he is. He and not at all. Not at all. He's not some scripture hating papist. No, he, he clearly has a great reverence for, for sacred scripture and bases explicitly, he says he bases all of his doctrine on sacred scripture, which you can see. Okay, I'm gonna go through the chat a little bit before we Okay. Let's see. Wait, is there a Sigenis white debate coming up? Oh, I might do a watch. Okay. Oh my gosh, there's just so much in the chat. Okay. Okay. In a section specifically about scripture, it's obviously going to be filled with scripture. Have you looked at work, uh, the work White cites on Aquinas' view of tradition? There's actually an entire book on um, on Saint Thomas's view of tradition and of of scripture, its relation to scripture. It's by actually a a, a, Lu- a Swedish Lutheran scholar. Uh, it's in Danish, but it's been translated to England. I think it's just called Sacred Doctrina, um, and when it comes to uh, Thomas's view of tradition, he would actually have a much lower view of tradition than I would be. I would be comfortable with, because for for Saint Thomas, he makes a distinction between those things which are to be believed and those things which are to be obeyed, and tradition is not in that category of the, those things which are to be believed, but those things which are to be obeyed and reverenced. And you can see in Sacred Doctrina where uh, where he goes, where the uh, gentleman who wrote that goes over it. This is a 50, 60 year old book, but by now, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's silly. What, what he's saying, it's like, don't, don't try to pretend that white has, has actually read Thomas. He's cherry picking quotes. Okay. He says nothing about Aquinas denying scriptures equality. He, he does. He, he definitely does. He says that Aquinas did not have as his principle of theology scripture. And that's just a, just a bald-faced lie. It's just, it's just a lie. It's Thomas himself, when he covers, where is he getting his, where is he getting his theology from? Scripture alone. 
The fathers are only probabilistic arguments, which I'm sure even Protestants would agree with. So, but where the rubber hits the road, this tradition slash philosophy, when expounded by the church, becomes an authoritative interpretation of scripture that Aquinas must affirm. No, that's White's issue. Well, again, see see when when St. Thomas um, explicitly covers the ways in which tradition are, are authoritative. That that's again, like when, when you, when you actually get the rubber hitting the road, when it comes to St. Thomas on tradition, you're going to get it mostly in the, in the institution of the sacraments. That's where you're going to get his strongest statements on tradition, because we don't know much about the institution of the sacraments. So he's like, well, yeah, this is how the church has always done it. And that's tradition not to be believed, but it is to be reverenced and it is to be submitted to. And, and those are different categories in St. Thomas's thought. So again, he, he's going to have a, uh, again, a, a pretty weird view that even Roman Catholics might be a bit uncomfortable with when it comes to St. Thomas. So again, Dr. White obviously has no idea what he's talking about. So White isn't denying the reformers' use of these categories or even the helpfulness of metaphysics, but they're really the heavy, heavy reliance some reform today are putting on such via Aquinas. It's again, it to to say that if you just read the the reformers, read Turretin and um, in his his first loci where he's talking about. Um, the nature of sacred doctrina, the nature of sacred doctrine, and where he goes over philosophy's use in, in theology. It, again, it, you're you're basically going to get the same thing. Okay. Oh, I meant White never says Aquinas never denies scripture's authority. Oh man, that's a double negative right there. You're breaking my brain. Okay, let's continue. I think I've approved St. Thomas's view enough. Traditions into two different kinds. So that you can always have what's in the oral tradition. It's in the oral tradition. No one knows what's in the oral tradition until Rome decides to define something from the oral tradition. This is a... Rome has never denied anything from the oral tradition alone. Give me one example. And St. Thomas never defined a doctrine really from the oral tradition alone. Fundamental mechanism for denying sola scriptura, and it was rejected as part of the looks, the light of the Reformation. It was rejected. So the point is, we are not, with Thomas, at a high mark of the practice of sola scriptura. We are not at a high mark in the practice of in-depth exegesis. There are things that happen... <laughs> I guarantee he's never even heard of St. Thomas's commentaries. Read them. ...in the Reformation that were good and wonderful things, which include, for example, the recovery of a recognition of the text of the Old Testament as inspired scripture, which I know they continue to say, but thanks to the influence of origin and the allegorical methodology, the interpretation of those things became highly problematic. But what? 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 No. No, 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 no. You... No. No.
commentary on Job. Read this. All all literal sense. St. Thomas's focus in this volume right here, commentary on Job, was the literal sense. Job, Old Testament text. St. Thomas is known for saying, okay, calm down. St. Thomas, he's known. Read the uh, intro to the sentences. Question one, uh, question one, section five, so, something five. If if you read that section from St. Thomas, it's not translated in English yet. I had to get my own translation for it. If you read it, St. Thomas says, you cannot base doctrine off of the spiritual sense of scripture. You can't because there's an epistemic gap between the the spiritual sense and the literal sense. And St. Thomas is commenting on the Old Testament is basically just the literal sense. Especially seen in his commentary on Job. Because, I mean, with the Morologia by uh, Pope St. Gregory the Great, you basically already had the uh, the moral sense of, of Job done. Just re- read this. Like, you, he has no idea what he's talking about. I, I don't get how people... I don't get how people could go through five minutes of his video and still think that James White knows what he's talking about when it comes to Thomas. He doesn't. He has no idea. No idea. All of a sudden, now you've got the reformers saying, we need to dig in Ad Fontes into the sources. And yes, it was... Oh, yeah, and also University of Paris and uh, the late medieval universities basically being the seed of of Hebrew learning. Yeah, are we, are we just going to forget that? No, no, no. Just the reformers were the first ones to know Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Are you, have you ever heard of uh, Nicholas of Cusa? Nick, no, no, I'm sure. I'm sure you have it. I'm sure you have it. Uh, <laughs> he actually went through Jewish sources and uh, in his commenting on scripture. And this is what uh, he was probably 15th century. Definitely not a proto reformer. Uh, Cardinal of the church. And uh, he would he would go through Jewish sources and go to local rabbis and he would be interacting with Jew- Jewish exegesis of scripture. Uh, in, and he would he knew Hebrew and he'd be using Hebrew. And that that was a lot of late medieval scholars. After this was, uh, after after the the art of um, not the art the the science of of language learning began to be revived in the West. But this is just silly. Because originally those scary proto reformers that started relearning Hebrew and it did not proto reformers. No 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 <laughs> no. U- University of Paris did not have proto reformers. No no. And all the stuff that went along with that. Uh, but it was the Reformation that brought these things about. Not the Roman Catholic Church. No. So there was tenebrous. There was darkness. But what, what did that involve? And it involved the sources. Not just the mechanism of argumentation. But the sources and the fundamental overlaying of the scriptures. With a traditional lens. Which can be taken in two ways overlaying the scriptures with the traditional lens if you mean i expound the scriptures according to the sense of the church catholic then yeah but even the reformers would agree with that <clears throat> you see right here in thomas it's almost like only one side gets the quote from thomas and one thing is awfully sure one thing i've learned uh, there there is really very little profit um attempting to argue from Thomistic sources, because first of all, unless you view Thomas in the highest way, you will simply be dismissed as someone who's proof texting. Only the other side gets to actually understand Thomas, even though they have all sorts of disagreements, but they don't really admit it. But what, what, what disagreements are you talking about? <laughs> I, 
I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure you're talking about the supremacy of the agent versus the passive intellect within the within the broke Thomas. I'm sure. I'm sure that's what you're talking about among the Thomas disagreements. Oh gosh, is <laughs> or or yeah, I'm sure you're talking about um, the disagreements on physical promotion amongst amongst the Dominicans. Yes, yes, that's what you're talking about when you call it, talk about disagreements among the among the Thomas. I'm sure that's what you're talking about. Oh gosh. Okay. Okay. There are four senses of scripture just because the allegorical is mentioned doesn't mean the literal is ignored. Yeah. So when it comes to, yeah, 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 yeah. When it comes to the relationship between the senses of scripture, um, the, the literal sense is the only sense we can argue from because that is the sense in which all men can know through their reading. You can't argue based on, um, because there's an epistemic gap between the, uh, the literal sense, which is a genus. And then the, uh, the allegorical sense, which is a genus that has the, the three, the allegorical, tropological and anagogical. So, um, so what, what the, what the allegorical sense is, is that is when those things, which are, um, those things, which are, represented by the words of scripture are themselves a sign of something else. So it's, it's kind of a second removal that you get there. So let's, let, for example, let's say the word lion is used in scripture. Lion is obviously literally referring to the, the beast. And um, it may be used allegorically where lion, the, uh, a lion itself is used and appointed by God as a representative for a, uh, for a, for Satan. So the word lion uh, literally is referring to a lion and then allegorically can be referring to Satan in that second removal. But, but yeah, yeah. So obviously James White doesn't understand this. He just, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, um, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure he's just reading through St. Thomas's sections um, in, in the Summa and then in the commentary on the sentences and in some of his, um, in some of his disputed questions where he's talking about this. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure. I mean, why, why am I so silly as to think that James White didn't just read like all of the entire Corpus Thomisticum and is coming at this from, he's definitely not just quote mining. Of, of course not. Definitely not. He's definitely not just getting quotes that other people sent him from Thomas. Oh man. Oh gosh. Okay. Okay. So we can argue Marian dogmas, which are based on the allegorical sense. Yes, I will. That, that will take a whole show to answer. Um, so I will, I will definitely write that down for a good idea for a show uh, because that, that takes forever, but I have thought about that a lot. Um, okay. There I, Wrote down on my sticky note. <laughs> Dr. White, the master of quote mind sentences. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay, let's get back to it. Um uh, and there's just no there's no end to it. it. It doesn't matter how accurate the citation is. Every time I've quoted Thomas, I've taken heat for that doesn't mean X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, but did he say what he said? Did he mean what he meant there? Oh, okay. All right. So, 
these are some of the things I think we need to keep in mind. It, it's just the same thing with with people quote mining the fathers. It's like if 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 you're quoting like let's say uh, you're saying you're you're a Catholic and you're saying okay this is what Augustine said in uh, in in his confessions I would not have believed the Gospels if it wasn't for the Catholic Church boom roasted Protestant. Well, uh, th- my first question to that is: Have you read the entire confessions? Because I, I, I don't, I'm not interested in dialoguing with you. Obviously, I would, I would agree with, uh, with your reading of that that um, section, but I don't want to have a dialogue with you if you haven't read the entire work. So, I'm sure Doctor White's not sitting around reading, um, reading Saint Thomas's Pauline commentaries, or, or he wouldn't be saying half of the silliness. Historically, as we think about. You know, how can you say um, that Thomas Aquinas was the greatest theologian church has ever known when Thomas Aquinas does not function on the basis of sola scriptura? R.C. Sproul was wrong, period. I mean, that that just begs the question, really. Uh, I don't think principally there would be any difference between St. Thomas's uh, strong, strong view of um, of the sole source of theology in his mind being scripture above any other doctor, above above all of these other sources of authority, and then a classical view of sola scripture with with those other authorities in submission and um, not having any other infallible sources. I, I don't think there's principally any difference. So it I so I mean, but it does it does, as people were saying in the chat, come from his presuppositionalist uh Vantilian Vantilian um philosophy. But I don't think there's principally any difference with how it's going to going to work itself out, so to speak, even though there's obviously difference on principles. I'm not denying that, but it's close enough to where practically it's going to it's not going to make much of a difference. Okay. In response to your question for one dogma defined by the church, not based on scripture, how about the assumption or do you consider this Pope biblical event based on scripture somehow? Yeah, again, I'll, uh, I have that, that, that'll be a very long answer that gets into the, the nature of, um, of the allegorical sense and the nature of, of magisterial authority. And that would take a really long time, but yes, it is, it is based on scripture, but I'm not going to tell you which ones. Oh yeah. Okay. We we need to eventually. Uh, there there's plenty of more cringe stuff. Should I turn it up the speed even faster? Let me know. And and I believe that when R.C.'s poll is alive, he was wrong in his estimation of Thomas Aquinas. Brilliant man, sure. But what makes a person a great theologian is their consistent faithfulness and submission to the authority of Scripture. Yep. And when it comes to Thomas, Thomas is deeply influenced by extra biblical metaphysical concepts that have a far greater impact upon his final theological conclusions than a consistent exegesis of the inspired text itself. I thought that was not even a debatable issue only 10 years ago amongst all of us. Again, St. Thomas, when talking about his own relationship to philosophy, <laughs> does not articulate it that way. I, and, and if you read, if you actually read his, his writings, the, the biggest impact is going to be um, is going to be sacred scripture, and the second biggest impact is going to be Lombard sentences right there. Those four volumes on my shelf back there, and then and then after that you're going to get individual works from the fathers. Obviously, Augustine, um, Dionysius, um, 
Pope St. Gregory the Great is another big one. Uh, John Damascene is another another one. And then the the gloss on scripture, the the and, and the, the decretals and, and stuff like that. Those are going to be your your big impacts on, on St. Thomas. But saying that just Aristotle was just wrecking his mind. No, 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 no. That, that's, that's not how Thomas did philosophy. That's just not how he did it. And reading his work should make that obvious. That he's really just categorizing what came before him, especially back there. And, um, and now it is a debatable issue. Astonishing what has happened. All right, so back to the, the uh, having gotten to the main point yet. <laughs> our separation from Thomas has occurred for no fault of our own. We have believed characters, caricatures that paint the reformers as they are anti-Thomistic, when in truth, I already read this. By neglecting half the church history, the Middle Ages spanning an entire millennium, we leave ourselves vulnerable to the inculcation of Trinitarian foibles, otherwise avoided by medieval scholastics like Thomas who outlined the mature consequences of Nicene Trinitarianism. So I have to ask the question. What is this, what is the guiding principle of the development of Trinitarian of Nicene Trinitarianism that continues all the way into the medieval period. What's the guiding principle? It can't be scripture anymore. Why? Why? We can't come to a better understanding of scripture, Dr. White. <laughs> they, they all they, they had it all figured out at, at the Nicene Council. Oh, gosh. It's just, it it doesn't, it it's his inability to make the distinction between in se and then in, in subiecto, as, as um, Joshua Summer said. Okay, let's get back into it. Not during that time. So what is it? And so how can you consistently hold to a biblically defined doctrine of sola scriptura, which I have been seeking to defend for decades? How can you hold to a biblically defined doctrine of sola scriptura and at the same time say, but to be a true Trinitarian, you need to embrace the development that takes place during centuries where sola scriptura is no longer being practiced? I mean, it's just it's just depending on how you're defining true, <laughs> because, I mean, I think you could be a, a true Trinitarian. I, I mean, I'm sure all of these other Reformed Baptists are saying you could be a true Trinitarian just reading um, the works of the fourth century uh, fathers, even before the Council of Constantinople. It'd be very difficult. You wouldn't have the best categories. It wouldn't be the easiest way. True, true and true. You could just read the uh, the Nicene Creed and be a be a true Trinitarian. That's what most people do in the world today is just read the Nicene Creed, and that's how they're a true Trinitarian. But, but when it comes to being the best Trinitarian you can be, when it comes to thinking about it as deeply as you can, yeah, it's going. Yeah, Thomas is indispensable, correct? And it's his it's his inability to make this distinction between what is good enough and what is best. That that that's right. Well, that's why I have this have this video by men who plainly submit themselves to the ultimate authority of the bishop of Rome, and in the case of Thomas, who plainly say, "But to be a true Trinitarian, you need to embrace the development that takes place during centuries where sola scriptura is no longer being practiced." By men who plainly submit themselves to the ultimate authority of the bishop of Rome, and in the case of Thomas, whose metaphysical categories are absolutely necessary and foundational the roman doctrine of the mass not exactly i i mean there's articulations of of transubstantiation that occur without without um 
an explicitly Aristotelian philosophy that would still be in line with Catholic teaching. I mean, it happened before the Aristotelian revival in the, in the retrieval in the, the 11th and 12th century. It happened before then. So. Which is the greatest blasphemy. Against the finish. Oh, gosh. We're going to get into it now. Foundational. The Roman doctrine of the mass, which is the greatest blasphemy against the finished work of Jesus Christ that I know of. Okay, boomer. What was the, what was the driving principle? That's the question. Um, so we finally get to the quote, <laughs> which uh, was the relevant part. Also, we have not treated Thomas with the same historical fairness and sobriety as other fallible theologians across the church's history. Of course, the evangelical will disagree with Thomas on a doctrine like the sacraments, but we have failed to recognize that less than 12% of his summa is content the evangelical with will it disagree with at all. But there was the quote. Honestly, I think Dr. White is correct on this. Going through, just going through my summa um, right now, I think obviously you'll have, dis- you'll have agreement with uh, questions one through 49 of uh, Prima Pars. And then as you go on, I, I don't, I don't even, even like he'll quote the, the section on the virtues and stuff like that. I, I don't think a modern Protestant would be too comfortable with St. <laughs> Thomas's teaching on the relationship between grace and the virtues and stuff like that. I mean, so it's definitely, and then obviously the supplementum and a lot of tertio pars would be disagreed upon because it covers sacraments and such. And some, even some parts of Christology would be disagreed upon, such as Thomas's denial of the Agnoite heresy. And yeah, so you're going to get a lot more than 12%. So I honestly kind of agree with James White here is that that's that he's being a little bit nice <laughs> and you have to have really high Protestants when it comes to re- really high church Protestants and, and having very high theologies to be able to agree with um, a lot of this. There is a quote. We have failed to recognize that less than 12% of his summa is content the evangelical will disagree with at all. Now, the summa is huge. I should have brought my copy in so you can see it again. I showed it. Um, the one you don't read. Last week, a week before. It's massive. It is a huge tome. But if an evangelical agrees with 88% of a system and a work that is written in subjection to the authority of the Bishop of Rome in defense of the Church of Rome, defends the punishment of heretics and the execution of heretics, the extermination of heretics, and does not derive its fundamental conclusions from an ultimate commitment to the consistency of that which is theonustos in scripture alone, then you're not reading it very clearly. And- again, <laughs> again, we're going we're gonna to keep going back and back and back and back and back to this. To the same thing is that, yes, principally, there's some disagreements, but practically in Thomas's working out of the system of theology, his ultimate his ultimate uh, source of theology is scripture itself. And he explicitly states it in multiple places, but you don't quote those quotes. Of course you don't. Why would you? And you are not recognizing that Thomas is consistent with Thomas. Based. And so we dare not try to turn Thomas into something he wasn't. I I primarily normally say it's about the early church fathers because I'm debating with Roman Catholics, but my goodness, what has happened that I'm now having to say this to my fellow Baptists. Based Baptists. Don't turn Thomas into something he wasn't. And don't say that Thomas and us agree on 88% of the doctrinal content of the Summa. 
the, the Twitter thread will go into a little more detail on this. Evangelicals might also be surprised to discover that they have an Augustinian ally in Thomas Based. with doctrines as widespread as predestination, providence, inspiration, atonement, and Christian virtues. Well, what, is, what does that mean? You, you mean that uh, evangelicals will agree with what Thomas said on these things? Well, there, there have to be areas of agreement. I mean, what, what percentage of the Journal of Discourses could we find some type of surface-level agreement on? Journal of Discourses is a 26-volume set of works, early sermons of the LDS leaders in, in Utah, Brigham Young and Orson Pratt and Orson Hyde and all the rest. Um, but those are surface-level agreements. What is the source of, of Christian virtues? Atonement? Atonement? Atonement. Atonement, you say. I have an entire book on atonement. Dissertation on the death of Christ. John Davenant. Y'all should pick it up. Militant Thomas Press. I'll put the link below in the live chat once we get started again. Here. This is where John Davenant, a Reformed divine, talks about the doctrine of the atonement, especially the extent of the atonement, although he covers other aspects of the atonement. And he especially deals with his continuity with the medieval scholastics. So yes, atonement, 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 atonement. And a lot of the Reformed divines realize this. It's a really good book, an excellent book, um, especially when it comes to uh, going against the idea of a limited atonement and seeing a... Uh, because he was against limited atonement, but he was at the Synod of Dort, which is the uh, the main, uh, probably the biggest uh, collection of Reformed theologians in the history of the of the existence of the Reformed Church. The most important, it's a confessional document, and uh, he was there. He was from the English Church, and um, he represented a stream of Reformed thought which was against limited atonement. So this is a wonderful, wonderful discourse on the um, on the extent of the atonement, and he covers his agreements with uh, Saint Thomas, especially among the scholastics. Actually, <laughs> look, I opened up to a random page, and look, Prima Pars, Question Twenty Five, Article Two, respond to the second objection. Look, he's quoting Thomas right there. Uh, <laughs> oh man. It's really good work, actually. It's very um, even. Catholics should should like it. Okay, so yes, the atonement too. Can we can we literally consider Thomas's doctrine of atonement apart from the mass? <laughs> no, which is which is why I think it's funny. But uh, but yeah, as a propitiatory sacrifice, really. But I mean, look at St. Thomas's doctrine of the, the Mass anyway. He's going to agree with, with Cajetan, not really Bellarmine. Bellarmine's doctrine of uh, the sacrifice of the Mass, which shouldn't be too much of a problem because, uh, because we can also pull up what the Reformers said about the sacrifice of the Mass. And I think we can have a lot more agreement than, uh, than disagreement on, on this idea. Inspiration? Uniqueness? Yes. Of Scripture? Yes. That means it cannot be subjugated to the it sacred tradition of the Church? Yes. That starling statistic leaves evangelicals open to interrogation. Starling or startling? Is that a typo? It says starling. But anyway, that starling statistic leaves evangelicals open to interrogation. Are evangelicals actually reading Thomas or relying on easy caricatures that depend on serious inaccuracies? But more to the point, I wonder if there's that. I wonder if that is a interview version of a subtweet. I get the feeling that it is. Uh, but more to the point, what other theologian in history would we abandon like this, especially when the same theologian was so responsible Listen to this. For the full development of the most foundational loci in orthodoxy, 
the Trinity and Christology. Let me repeat. I think I think people need to hear this because see, once people start going down this Thomistic road, there don't seem to be a whole lot of stopping places along the way. Uh, so th he's saying that Thomas was responsible. Okay, here. Here's the link to uh, Davenant's work. Five dollars for Kindle, eighteen uh, nineteen ninety nine for hardcover, and as you saw. Very high quality hardcover. I did it myself. Okay, so uh, there's a uh, so agent intellect. Would Aquinas be a hypothetical universalist in his views on the atonement? Well, actually, Broda. So again, man, they're really getting to mention my Patreon here. So patreon.com slash I actually released a whole article I wrote about St. Thomas's view on the extent of the atonement. Um, right there, but that would take a, again, that would take a whole video, but, uh, in brief, uh, yeah, he would have a lot of agreements with the hypothetical universalist view of it. Um, okay. Let's get going, but, um, in more detail, uh, basically Christ, uh, got a certain, um, potentia activa, an act of potency or power, um, for the remission of sins, which he implies, but because matter is not disposed to form in in uh, in each person, which matter is disposed to form by grace, therefore it's not received, um, received in the subject in which uh, the the active potency of the atonement is being applied. You should invite classical theist someday. That'd be kind of based. For the full development of the most foundational loci in orthodoxy, the Trinity and Christology. So that that was left undone even in the post-Nicene period, because there are clearly differences between Thomas and some of the post-Nicene fathers. And we differences. What do you mean differences? Disagreements? Perhaps. But I'm sure like there there's you can find plenty of uh Nuance differences, differences in nuance, in opinions. We see these differences. I go, little naive me, who years ago wrote a book that for years people really enjoyed, and now all of a sudden I just got canceled. That guy. And I said something at the beginning that just caught a lot of people by surprise. I called myself a biblical Trinitarian. I'm wondering if. Read, read, read St. Thomas's, I think it's his commentary on, on the Gospel of John, chapter one. St. Thomas would agree biblical trinitarian that's possible to be from this perspective could you be a biblical <laughs> yes you can and saint thomas would love would, would like that <laughs> and he and he exegeted it from from certain texts no no i think it's his commentary on romans in chapter one where he talks about the seed of david according to the flesh now nah, maybe that's just some christology i i can't i can't remember i know there's somewhere in but yes, he would he would like the the idea of being a biblical trinitarian. Or is there a process of doctrinal development? And what guides it? What its authority is? What sources are brought to bear upon it? Is absolutely essential. So, it's it's almost seems like what I'm hearing here is that to truly have a fundamentally orthodox view of the Trinity and Christology requires the application of Aristotelian philosophical categories. I would deny that. They may be mediated, they may be baptized, 
but still, you still have it. There is no such thing as a biblical Trinitarian. Of course, there's such a thing as a biblical Trinitarian. Oh, gosh. Roman Catholics recognize Thomas's indispensability to theology. Based. But we have allowed them to take Thomas without a fight. Think about that. That does seem to be saying that Thomas is indispensable to theology. I, again, my age is betraying. Indispensable can be used after two senses. In the first sense, indispensable as in um, water is indispensable to the life of man. In, in the second sense, it could be used as if a horse is indispensable to a, uh, a journey. We're using St. Thomas's indispensability in the second sense. Me. I have lectured on the Trinity in Reformed Baptist churches for decades. Oh, well. And nobody, nobody got up and said, well, that's fine as far as it goes, but if you really want to be Orthodox, you need to get Thomas in here. And he, <laughs> that would be a based Baptist right there. He'll give you the finishing touch. <laughs> now, here it is, in the Master Seminary Journal. We're winning, boys. We'll win. Don't worry. Um, all that to say, if we have any hope of recovering Nicene Trinitarianism, then we can no longer afford to ignore the angelic doctrine. Okay. Questions in the chat. Okay. So thoughts on Ed Phaser. Ed Phaser, he's pretty based. I read his introduction to uh, Scholastic Metaphysics. Um, is his book on five proofs of God any good? I haven't read it, but I mean, yes, a small book on Scholastic Metaphysics is really good. Yeah. And White's Trinitarian theology is polytheism. So the irony behind this is actually that that James White did have a <laughs> deficient view of the Trinity. And if he would have read St. Thomas, he would have been at, been able to articulate it better. So that's the irony behind all of this. And then he even makes reference to reformed Thomas in the same paragraph. Now, I said that there is a, a Twitter thread that uh, may indicate that Dr. Barrett heard that I was going to be addressing the subject because this was posted at 10.51 a.m. today. So um, I'm not sure not sure exactly how the Twitter timing stuff works. But anyway, uh, I en enjoyed being interviewed by Dr. Danger 1689, evidently was interviewing, in the, in the new TMSJ. Here's a thread explaining why our Protestant fathers love to critically retrieve Thomas Aquinas on so many subjects from his Summa. Okay. In total, Thomas wrote 512 questions in his Summa Theologica. Some say theologica, some say theologi. One of those 512, out of those 512, only 16 treat faith, and only 34 treat the saints, Mary, and the sacraments, i.e. seven sacraments. That means only 10% to round up. Now, this is, I, I question this because uh, this is not bulk analysis of number of words or anything like that. It's just simply number of questions. Some questions are answered far faster than other questions are answered. Um, so anyway, that means only 10% to round up of the entire summa, now listen to this, addresses those major doctrines considered controversial during the 16th century. You hear that? Are you, are you tracking with me? Have I lost everybody? So the only things considered controversial were faith, the saints, and sacraments. Really? Ecclesiology wasn't considered controversial? St. Thomas doesn't really have much of a section on ecclesiology. It wasn't until, um, where is it? Uh, this, this is really the first work on systematic ecclesiology you're going to get is uh, St. Robert Bellarmine's um, On the Church. His De Ecclesia is the, the, the first systematic work you're going to get on the topic. I mean, but you'll have certain late medieval um, theologians arguing on the topic of ecclesiology, including a few who influenced the reformers. So, yeah, St. Thomas wasn't really writing about ecclesiology. Um, 
the formal principle of the Reformation, sola scriptura, was not considered controversial? I mean, he again, he, he mentions it in his in, in one question, one article of that question on, on sacred doctrina, and then occasionally he'll mention it, his, his view of the authority of scripture and then of the magisterium. So, I mean, yeah, add a few extra questions there. Interesting approach to Thomas, isn't it? Uh, even if one is generous and includes ancillary doctrines, like original sin or mysticism. Okay, I don't care too much about those because the real issue is, why aren't we recognizing that Thomas is functioning on a different authority level with a different ultimate authority? The percentage only rises by one, and that addition is generous since it's complicated by Thomas's Augustinian soteriology. If nuance is considered, that is, the reformers took issue with specific aspects of medieval soteriology and ecclesiology, the 10% dropped. When the scope of the summa is taken into consideration, it dwarfs discontinuity between reformers and scholastics purely from a quantitative perspective. Well, I would like to suggest that the quantitative perspective is utterly worthless historically. Utterly worthless. And this brings us back to, again, what is our authority for theology proper, for the Trinity? What is our authority? Is it a developmental process? Is it Nicaea? Constantinople? Chalcedon? That, development, that developmental process is just a reflection on Scripture, Dr. White, before you ask. Ephesus? And were those just the beginning steps that, that still had uh, literally 800 years to go until Aristotelian categories of metaphysics could be brought to bear to give us what we really need to believe? Is that what we are being told? Because you... That's not what you're being told. Well, maybe, I mean, the, the reform... the. Uh, Thomistic Baptists might be telling you that, but, uh, but I would correct them on that. I'd be happy to. And I think St. Thomas would correct them on that too. Because even though the earlier the earlier church didn't speak in those categories and were in a lesser state of development, they didn't understand it in the depth in which St. Thomas understood it. It's still sufficient. But again, our illustration of necessity of water for life or necessity of a horse for a trip. You don't really need a horse for a trip. You could walk, but uh, but it's dang helpful to have a horse. We'll defend that perspective very differently than you'll defend the perspective that I have presented for all these years. That's why I'm looking at this going, guys, what happened? What happened? Hmm. Uh, he goes, he gives some examples. Okay. Example, in Prima Pars, he treats knowledge of God, divine perfections, the Trinity, creation, ex nihilo, angels, the Imago Dei, divine providence, and more. In Prima Secundae and Secunda Secundae, which together make up the majority of the Summa, innumerable Christian virtues. By and large, reformers did not need to address these basic loci of orthodoxy. Okay, here's an important, I wasn't going to spend this much time. Um, and I'm, <laughs> the way things are going, I'm not even sure how I'm going to get to anything else because I only have a certain amount of time. Like I said, I'm supposed to be doing, hopefully be doing the interview uh, from Ukraine here in a little while. But I can't rush this. This is not really rushable stuff. And it's far, far, far more important than two men who can't do a book review. So we'll focus on this. By and large, the reformers did not need to address these basic loci of orthodoxy. Well. They didn't address primarily issues along those lines. When they dealt with um, theological issues regarding regards to Trinity and things like that, they were dealing with people who were rejecting the deity of Christ, uh, rejecting the doctrine of the Trinity, obviously someone like Miguel Cervantes and things like that. But there were others who had issues along those lines. But let's remember something. Just because the first generation of reformers did not address something does not mean it did not need to be addressed. Let me give you a real obvious um, example of this. Mary. I wonder. Uh, no, I guess not. I'm sure there is a way to do this faster than this. <laughs> but, eeny, eeny, eeny. and this is, I've got my Bible thing up here that I can pull down later on. It's really neat. I'm not sure I'm going to get to it today, but there you go. Um, go back to yellow because it looks like yellow chalk on a green chalkboard. And all, all we need is, is, is for the computer to come up with that wonderful sound of chalk on the chalkboard, and we'll go from there. Um, when we talk about, okay, here's, 
let's just call this beginning reformation. Let's, let's, let's say 1517, just for the fun of it, all sorts of questions about that. Let's not, let's not go there. And let's go to uh, middle, let's go to 1648. Let's go to 1689. And what do you have developing during this time period? What is, what is growing and becoming more and more distinct during this time period, but what we would call uh, reformed scholasticism? In 1689? Oh, gosh. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I mean, many would place the height of, of Reformed scholasticism between the uh, really um, the Synod of Dort, which was, gosh, that was the early 17th century. I can't remember an exact date. And then um, in the, what would it be, 16, late 1640s? Uh, I think yeah, 1648. That would be the Westminster. Uh, that'd be about the uh, the limits in which the highest point of scholasticism was was being reached. Then it kind of goes downhill from there. But yeah, reform scholasticism was basically over by 1689. I mean, you, yeah, it's basically over at that point. I mean, Geneva has fallen and and all that and all that stuff. Okay, you're getting the Reformed Academy developing. All right, and the tendency with any movement is that after this uh, initial period of time, say in here, you get what I call solidification. So the categories become solidified. And in here, there can still be a lot of discussion. There can be a lot of looking at things. But then the tendency is once you start building schools and publishing stuff, there's less and less of a tendency to think through issues. So when we look in this early period here, what did the reformers believe about Mary? Well, um, we have to remember that a number of the Marian dogmas that have been defined since that time period weren't a big issue. What? <laughs> no, 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 you, you didn't, no. <sighs> they hadn't been defined, but I can pull up to you multiple quotes from people in this era before in your little 1517 to 1648 era where everybody was just stupid about Mary. I can pull you up quotes where they were complaining about the fact that there was the Feast of the Assumption. You know that. There was the Feast of the Conception of Mary. You know that. And there was the prevalent teaching of the Immaculate Conception. They, they were complaining about these things back then. So they, they knew about it. They weren't just like, oh, wait, Rome teaches the Assumption. No. <laughs> no. 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 No, 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 no. They, they, they fought against those aspects of Mariology while defending other aspects of Mariology consciously. They were consciously choosing between these aspects of Mariology. It wasn't just like, oh, well, we always just got the, the, the Catholic view of, of Mariology. We need, we need somebody with a French accent. We'll need her to do Calvin. Okay. Um, things like the Immaculate Conception, which, by the way, Thomas rejected. Interesting fact. We know. Um, but others had immaculate conception, bodily assumption, hadn't been defined dogmatically yet. But they were still 
the vast, vast teaching of the Roman church and had feast days for them, which the reformed complained about and rejected consciously. It's not like they just didn't know or that uh, that just didn't exist as a thought in their minds. Oh, gosh. And I think if they had been, then there would have been more attention from the reformers because these would be dogmatic teachers. But there is one that was accepted by many, mm. the perpetual virginity. Yeah, because it's correct. That's why. Now, as defined today, I can make a very strong case that the perpetual virginity of Mary, aside from, um, aside from, <laughs> strange when you're in the middle of a lecture and you're, what, what a day we live in. And, 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 and you know what's even more annoying about this? Read Turretin. Let's, let's go way back to Turretin. Because I always say go to Turretin. If you want to know what the Reformed believe. You know, the, the Reformed knew about Roman Catholic distinctives and denied some of them. They knew about them. They weren't just wholesale doing it because it wasn't a primary doctrine yet. If you read Turretin, he's denying the aspect you're about to talk about, which is um, is perpetual virginity in part two, which is um, talking about uh, Mary retaining her virginity even in the in the birth, the physical markers of virginity in birth. Turretin knew about that and rejected it. He also knew about the vow of virginity and rejected it. Like th this whole like uh, facade that's been built up to try to explain away the the uh, belief in the perpetual virginity among earlier reformers. It's just garbage. You don't even get it until the mid 17th century where you get you get some some of the reformers openly denying this. And that's some of the Puritans. And then it isn't again for decades after that that you get it even being a, a significant position. I don't know that Spurgeon would survive this. I'm in the middle of a lecture talking about the perpetual Virginia Mary, and it's someone inside my RV. We just took the RV unit in for maintenance and repair, and I will know quickly. And uh, okay, let's turn the laser guns off. And <laughs> so, uh, we, back to Mary. Yes, what are we talking about? Yes, back to Mary. Okay. I can make a strong case that the perpetual Virginia Mary is a fundamental denial of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If Jesus beamed out of Mary's womb, if there was no natural birth, there was no incarnation and therefore no atonement. Okay? Now, the early church fell into this because of the rise of what? Desert Fathers, Gnosticism, Monasticism, Pillar Saints, all sorts of neat, wonderful, fun stuff like that. I'm hoping, hoping we get to teach early church history later in the year. Uh, and man, the Pillar Saints. <laughs> what is it like to build up a pillar over time and live on the top of it? Rain, snow, sun, have your disciples take your doo-doo down and bring your food. What a life. Anyway, there are unbiblical reasons why this doctrine developed. It is directly, directly, 1,000% contrary to the plain teaching of Scripture. Just, just clear as a bell. But Luther had no desire to analyze it or to dispute it. And why? Because it had been accepted for so long, and it was considered to be unholy to question such a thing. Even though, this, if you applied the same hermeneutics, and methodology of exegesis that Luther used to defend so much of the Reformation to this subject, he would have rejected this, but he didn't. Calvin made sort of a vague statement about it. A vague statement about it. <laughs> later, later, after this time period, it's like, and especially as Rome continued its Marian development, mm. all of a sudden, yeah, no, we need to start talking about this, and yeah, let's take a look at it and that's not like just read the sources that's that like this is completely made up i don't know where he got this from i'd be very interested to see who he's reading who was saying it. it's like if you look at all the available evidence we have from the reformed view on mary 
Like it, it is no, no, that's just not it. There, but they didn't do this during the period of reformation. Oh, so gosh. when people say, "Yeah, well, Luther did reject it," so what? So what? There are only so many things. Luther, especially, was extremely concerned about being accused of creating anarchy, of destroying the church, and so he's just. Does that mean that this is this is biblical, or that even his testimony is relevant? Not really, not really. And so here's here's the application. When we, in centuries later, look at something like, and let's just all be honest, what is this all about? It's all about the extended assertion of divine simplicity. Not divine simplicity, not the idea that God is, no one's defending the idea that God's made up of all sorts of different parts and those little parts you put them together and you, oh God, no one's saying that. This is all about Thomas's insistence that ad intra, in God, there is no distinction to be made between his attributes. Because in his worldview, in his metaphysics, if the human mind can make the distinction, then it exists in reality. Look at the... Do you just see the article that I wrote on this? The ontological argument. It's, it's, a, it's a part of the, the way people think. <laughs> if, if they could be distinguished in the mind, they could be distinguished in reality. Oh, gosh. Um, have you ever heard of a uh, virtual distinction or a uh, logical distinction or rational distinction? Distinctions made in the mind. Not made in reality. In that time period. And so you have to have your view of simplicity add extra outside of God and add intra. And you have to use Thomas's metaphysics to get to this point. And there are people saying, if you don't go here, you don't really believe that. And you're going to end up in some type of tritheist or polytheist or something like that. Now, there are other reformed people in history who point out that if you aren't careful over here, you can end up in some type of pantheism. And I don't think any of the people over here are going to end up as pantheists. And it's absurd for the people over here to think that us over here are going to end up as tritheists. But that's what this is all about. You've already ended up there. Well, that's what this is all about right now. I guarantee you, if we don't rein this horse in and recognize the centrality of sola scriptura, it ain't going to end here. And eventually, this won't be an argument amongst Reformed Baptists anymore because there'll be a whole bunch of people who were once Reformed Baptists who ain't no more. Okay, I'll finish it there. The prophetic James White. If you all keep reading Thomas, you won't be Reformed Baptist anymore. Thanks be to God. Happened to me. It can happen to you too. So... Ready to switch gears in 28 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I have to just have dinner real quick. And then I have it with uh, the other Paul and I are going to be talking about Molinism. Who taught that Jesus beamed out? Oh, he's just referring to the the fact that uh, Mary is a virgin in part two. Okay. Okay. Thank you. And uh, remember, subscribe, like, comment, absolutely annihilate that algorithm. And I will see you guys eight o'clock. Uh, well, seven o'clock, I'll be with um, with the other Paul. We'll be talking about Molinism. And then eight o'clock I have with, uh, with Matthew Pearson. And we'll be talking about um, the reform view of the Eucharist. So thank you all and God bless. Lord,